We've already said, haven't we, how wonderful it's been to hear a bit from Ben and Cody this morning about why they've decided to come and be baptised today and what it was that, that led them to first trust in Jesus, to, to put their faith in him. It's been really great to hear this morning, but in one sense, today is kind of just the beginning, isn't it? Ben and Cody have described how they came to believe in Jesus. And that all sounds great. But what happens next? What should they expect life to be like now that they're Christians? Or to put it another way, imagine that that someone asks you, even after the service this morning, to explain what the Christian life is like. What they should expect if they decided to start following Jesus themselves. I wonder what, what Bible verses might you take them to uh, to help them see. I wonder if you go for any of these. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 John chapter 3, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Or John 15, Jesus says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Not the kind of verses we tend to stick up on the fridge or or write in someone's baptism card, are they? But the thing is, the Bible is crystal clear that this is what we should expect if we follow Jesus. Ben and Cody and, and anyone else who chooses to follow a man who was opposed, hated, persecuted and eventually executed should expect to face similar treatment. Jesus tells his people, expect persecution. And we can see that's been the case throughout history and around the world. It's estimated that on average, every single month, 322 Christians are killed worldwide as a direct consequence of their faith. 214 church buildings are destroyed and 772 Christians are beaten, abducted, and imprisoned for following Jesus. Not the kind of thing you would say if you were trying to sell Christianity, is it? And I don't expect that that anyone in this room has experienced persecution quite like that. But although we might not uh, be persecuted in the same way, that doesn't mean that it is all easy being a Christian in this country. And so whether it's the, the threat of prison and torture and death, or the relatively small but still significant marginalisation and bullying that many Christians face in the West. All Christians should expect to be hated, says Jesus. Persecution is is not the exception, it is the norm. Which means the big question for us and, and the big question for the church around the world and throughout history is how do we keep going? What do we need to do? What do we need to know when this sort of suffering comes our way? And that question brings us to the passage we've just had read, to to Revelation chapter 2. If this is your first time with us, you've joined us at the start of a series looking at a number of letters given by Jesus to some different churches in Asia around 2,000 years ago. The the letters come as part of this magnificent vision given to the Apostle John. 
John was a man who was persecuted for following Jesus. He was sent to live in exile on the island of Patmos. And while he's there, he receives this, this vision of the glorious risen Jesus. It's a vision we saw in chapter 1 that, that causes him to fall to the ground as though dead, unable to stand in the presence of this mighty king. But King Jesus doesn't leave John in the dust. No, he, he gently and lovingly lifts him up and then he speaks to him. He speaks to him and he tells him exactly what he wants to say to each one of his churches. And that's what we have in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These letters are the words of the risen King Jesus given to specific churches who all face specific challenges. Which means sometimes they are their words of rebuke. We saw that last week, didn't we, with the church in Ephesus who had abandoned their love for Jesus. But other times they are words of comfort or encouragement. And that's what we find in our letter today. This morning we're going to spend a bit of time now looking at the letter King Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna. And we're about to see that Smyrna is a church facing persecution. It's a church hated by state and religious powers alike. And the big thing that Jesus wants to say to this persecuted church is be faithful, not fearful. Be faithful, not fearful. How can Jesus say that? What, what allows Jesus to say that to a, a church persecuted for his name? How can he say, don't fear? Well, first we can see it's because he knows their situation. Jesus knows their situation. Look there, if you can, at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions. Smyrna was a, a small town not far north of Ephesus that we looked at last week. It was small, but that didn't mean that it was insignificant in the Roman Empire. It, it had a strategic port, a harbour that meant that it was a place of wealth and prosperity. More than that, it was famous for its uh, pagan temples to the goddess Roma and to the Roman emperor Tiberius. And so Smyrna was a, an important, a significant town. But just as we saw last week with Ephesus, that made it a difficult place to be a Christian. In fact, as we're going to see later on, some of the earliest records of Christian martyrs come from Smyrna. And so Jesus writes to this church under pressure, and once again he begins by saying, I know, I know. Jesus, the one who walks among his people, the one who is close to his people, says, I know your situation. But unlike with Ephesus, Jesus' words here are not given as a rebuke, but as a reassurance. He says, doesn't he, I know your afflictions. I'm not unaware or uncaring of your suffering. I know. And the wonderful thing is that, well, that King Jesus says the same thing to the suffering church today. To the church in Afghanistan, living in daily fear of the Taliban. King Jesus says, I know your affliction. 
to the Christian in a North Korean labor camp, wondering whether anyone knows or cares about what is happening to them, Jesus says, I know your affliction. And so you see, for the church facing persecution, the fact that Jesus knows is a huge comfort. But what does he know? What does he know about the affliction in Smyrna? Look at verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. The church in Smyrna was a materially poor church. And that gives us a little bit of a clue as to the kind of affliction, the kind of suffering they might be facing. As I said a minute ago, the, the city itself was a wealthy place. Smyrna was prosperous, but it was also pagan, full of idol worship and, and temples to various gods. And it was the combination of those two things that made life difficult for Christians. You see, if you, if you wanted to do well in business, if you wanted to, to make money and, and progress up the career ladder... Well, then in Smyrna, you would have been expected to take part in all the various temple rituals and sacrifices that would have come as part of that. Refusing to be part of the idol worship of the day would have meant you were shunned, overlooked, marginalized by society. And so that seems to be the case for the church in Smyrna. Their their unwillingness to take part in the idolatry meant they were marginalized, disregarded, and, and that led to their poverty. But their suffering doesn't stop there. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, and I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. The only people that weren't required to take part in Roman idolatry and temple worship were the Jews. For a long time, they had been granted a, a special exemption, which meant they were allowed to worship their God in their temple. And in the early days of the church, that exemption extended to Christians as well. As far as the Romans were concerned, the, the Christian church was just this offshoot, this sect of Judaism. And so it was lumped in with them, given the same protection as the Jews. But that didn't last long. Because most of the time, Actually, the Jews wanted nothing to do with this new Jesus-worshipping movement. And so quickly and deliberately, they began to separate themselves from the Christians. Not only did they separate themselves, but they also began to slander or accuse Christians to the Roman authorities. We get glimpses of that through the book of Acts, where it's often the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leaders that accuse and stir up opposition for the church. But why such strong opposition? What, why would the Jews choose to side with Rome rather than the church? At one level, it seems that that opposition was born out of jealousy. The Jews considered themselves to be the chosen people of God. They were the ones waiting for their Messiah to come and restore their nation, Israel. And so for these Christians to come along and, and start claiming, well, the Messiah has already come and he's come not just for Jews, but, but for Gentiles, for, for non-Jews as well, that was too much for the Jewish authorities to handle. They couldn't, they wouldn't accept it. And so they opposed anyone who believed it to be true. Pride and jealousy led to the Jewish persecution of Christians. But Jesus says there's, a, there's an even deeper, even darker reason than that. Verse 9, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, 
and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Uh, Two of the big things we learn about Satan in the Bible are that he accuses the people of God, Satan literally means the accuser, and that he opposes the Messiah. We're going to hear a lot more about that later on in Revelation. And so Jesus says, look, here are some people who, who claim to be Jews, but who are accusing the true people of God, the church, and who are opposing the true Messiah, Jesus. And so by their accusations, by their opposition, they show that they're not really Jews at all. They don't belong to God. No, they belong to Satan. And so you see, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions. I know that you're marginalized by society. I know that you're slandered by the religious authorities. I even know that you're opposed by Satan. Jesus knows about the suffering of his church. He's not unaware or uncaring when it comes to the persecution of his people. And that remains true for us today. Of course, our afflictions are not the same as those in Smyrna. But maybe you know this morning what it is like to be opposed for your faith in Jesus. Maybe you felt the pain of being marginalized, cut out of conversations, overlooked because you're one of those Christians. Maybe you've experienced that horribly lonely feeling of being slandered. Of people saying all sorts of unfair, untrue things about you at work, at school, online. If you know what that feels like, if you've experienced affliction for your faith, Jesus says, I know. You're not alone. Your pain is not unseen. I know. Jesus sees the persecution of his people. He he knows He cares. But then what does he say they should do? What words does he have for the persecuted church in Smyrna? Well, verse 10, he says, don't be fearful. Instead, be faithful. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Having told them that he knows all about what they are currently facing, Jesus says things are about to get a whole lot worse. The heat is going to be turned up from poverty and slander to prison and death. Things are going to get worse in the future, says Jesus, but, but you still don't need to be afraid. And actually, that's so often what we need to hear, isn't it? So often our biggest fears are not to do with our current situation, but more to do with what we think might happen in the future. It's the fear of consequences in the future that often have the biggest impact on the choices we make in the present, isn't it? Added to that, we live in a culture, in a society, where where, where the idea of comfort and security is deeply ingrained in us. I think most of us go around, myself included, with this kind of general expectation that life should feel comfortable and be secure most, if not all, of the time. Which means if you're anything like me, then you find it so easy, so easy to think that following Jesus should come at minimal personal cost. If following Jesus means coming to church, singing my favorite songs and spending time with people who all agree with me, 
well, then that's brilliant. I love it. But if following Jesus pushes me out of my comfort zone, if it takes me to places and to people that aren't so safe, aren't so comfortable, if, if it means losing some of the security and comfort that I value so much, well, then I'm not so excited. I'm not so keen on that version of following Jesus. You see, I think we have become so used to comfort and security in this life that one of our greatest fears is that we might lose those things in the future. And it's that fear, that fear of future suffering, that shapes many of the choices that we make in the present. But here Jesus says to the church then and to us now, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear the future. Yes, suffering will come. Yes, you will be persecuted. But that is not a reason to be fearful. Instead, you can be faithful. You can keep going. You can, you can keep following me no matter what comes. Jesus says you can be faithful, not fearful. And then he gives two big reasons for us in verse 10. The first, he says, is that, that your suffering is limited. Look at verse 10 again. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. We've already thought a bit, haven't we, about how numbers have meaning, significance in Revelation. So the number 12 represents the people of God, or the number 7 represents completion or perfection. Numbers have meanings. But what about the number 10? What's the significance of the 10 days of suffering here? Well, I have to say, this one isn't quite as straightforward as some other ones. There are a variety of ideas out there. Some people say it's a long time. Other people say that it's a short time. It's not that clear. And so I think the best way to understand the number 10 here is simply that it's a, a limited, it's a known number. In other words, in the midst of suffering... As you're going through the mill, the, the church in Smyrna, they, they have no idea how long this is going to go on for. And that's one of the hardest things when it comes to suffering, isn't it? When will it end? Will this be forever? They don't know how long they have to be faithful for. But Jesus does. Jesus knows their situation. He, he knows their suffering won't last forever. He knows it's limited. It'll be for 10 days, he says. And then it'll end. And so that's the first big reason he gives. He says you can keep going, you can, you can stay faithful because your suffering is limited. But then secondly and wonderfully, he says your suffering is limited, but your life is not. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus says, look, the, the reason you can keep going, the reason you don't need to fear is that death is not the end. The big reassurance, the great comfort for Christians facing persecution is that Jesus promises the crown of life. And that is not an empty promise from Jesus. It is not some sort of nice sentiment to, to give to people who are facing hard times. Because remember who makes this promise. Look back at verse 8. 
how Jesus introduces himself. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. Jesus is the one who has suffered at the hands of his enemies. He is the one who has been persecuted to the point of death. But he is also the one who has risen to new and eternal life. And so the great promise, the the great hope for Christians is that Jesus has utterly defeated death. The very thing we fear most, the, the thing that ultimately robs us of the security and the comfort that we value so much, that thing has been dealt with by King Jesus. And so he says, you don't need to fear. You don't need to fear death because I have promised you life. One person who knew that promise very well was a man called Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna about 60 years after this letter to the the church was written. And by that time, at the time of Polycarp, persecution in that church had increased dramatically, just as Jesus said it would. Persecution had increased and so Polycarp was brought before the Roman authorities and he was told that he must reject Christ and bow down to Caesar or face the consequences. And so as Polycarp stood before the Roman authorities, he he famously said this in response. For 86 years I have been Christ's servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I reject my king who has saved me? The Romans threatened Polycarp to, they said they would feed him to wild beasts and burn him with fire if he didn't reject Christ. To which Polycarp said, you threaten me with a fire that burns only briefly and after a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you wish. Polycarp, an 86-year-old bishop, stands before Rome, before his persecutors, and says, you only have the power to hurt me for a little while. But I know the one who has given me life forever. You threaten me with death today, but I know the one who has saved me from death now. And verse 11 from the second death, from the judgment that is to come. In other words, there is nothing you can do that can truly hurt me. There is no threat that you can make that my King Jesus has not already overcome. And so can you see, we began this morning thinking about how Jesus says, look, if you follow me, then you should expect to suffer like me. The world hated and persecuted Jesus and so it will hate and persecute his people. It has always been that way. But the reason people like Polycarp and the people like Ben and Cody and others still choose to follow Jesus, the reason we can still be faithful and not fearful when opposition comes is that we don't just follow Jesus into suffering. We follow him into resurrection and life. Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. And it's as we see him, as we we trust him, 
that we can have courage no matter what we face. It is as we look to Jesus and, and believe in his promises that we can be faithful to him rather than fearful of what might come. Jesus says to the Christian facing affliction, to the church that is marginalized and accused, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death because I will give you the crown of life. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we thank and praise you this morning as the one who has defeated death for us. Jesus, we ask that that you would help us to trust you. Help us to know the certainty of your promise. That if we cling to you, if we trust you, if we remain with you, then we will have the crown of life. Please help us to be bold. Please help us to be faithful. Please help us to uh, proclaim your name no matter what we might face, knowing that we are completely secure in your hands. And we ask it in your name. Amen.